In this episode of the Guidewire podcast, I'm interviewing Dr. Yi Lam, a family medicine practitioner at UNC, member of the clinical advisory group for Fast Tracks, and an innovation instructor for medical students. Welcome to Guidewire, a direct line to medical device innovation. We are the boots on the ground inside of healthcare working to uncover and solve high impact, unmet medical needs. Welcome to the Guidewire podcast. This is Devin Hubbard, your host. And today I am pleased and it is my great pleasure to be joined by Dr. Yi Lam. She is a family medicine physician here at UNC and also one of the members of our clinical advisory group here in Fast Tracks. Welcome, Yi. Thanks for joining me today. That's wonderful to be here. Thank you. Yeah. So first of all, I want to make sure I got your intro right. (laughs) Uh, You're in family medicine here at UNC, but tell us a little bit more about what you do. So I am a family medicine provider, and so I provide care to patients spanning their whole lifespan from newborn care all the way through geriatric care. And I work in several different settings, mostly in the outpatient setting where I see patients in clinic and then also work in the hospital. And I'm the director of our hospital service. Thanks. That's fantastic. So first, I want to start by asking how you got plugged into Fast Tracks, because I know I wasn't part of that, but I know that you have a background in innovation, so that makes sense. But how did you get connected with us? So this originally was a little bit of a mystery to me as well. I received an email from one of the group members and was really excited to learn more about this because I have a background in engineering, um, had done some research work, especially in nanotechnology prior to medical school and thought maybe that was why that someone had found that out and recommended that I look into this group. It turns out actually it's more of just a mutual connection um, that a member of the group knew someone that knows me and uh, had recommended that that person reach out to me. So I'm really glad that that happened as a chance connection because it turned out it was a great fit. It's funny because on my end of things, like we were very excited to have you join, but I never really learned where you came from. And I was like, oh, cool. Who is this person? I want to learn more. I feel like the more times I interact with you, I'm like, oh, this, you're so cool. Like, like I learned last week that you did atomic force microscopy. And I, ha- of course, have <laughs> some overlap there too. So that was really cool. Yeah. Anyway, today I wanted to talk to you about, because I, I, I know that you also help teach and you do some work in the innovation realm. And obviously you're one of our clinical advisors, but you also prompted another question that I hadn't thought of before. How did you get where you are? I mean, you did your PhD first. And then you decided to go to medical school? Yes, I just really love school. I think I counted 28 years that I was in school. I can't remember if that includes training anymore. And so you're right, I did do research in the Department of Mechanical Engineering and Material Science, actually at Duke. And as a part of my PhD, did work on understanding how nanomechanics played a part in HIV vaccine development and antibody neutralization. And so I was always interested in how technology can impact health and improve health, but I didn't think that it was sort of through the direct patient care realm. I thought it would be through innovation, technology, engineering, which was my background. And then as part of that whole process and training, I just came to realize so much of what I really wanted to impact was maybe more on an emotional level. And I felt like having the scientific background knowledge, the way that I think about problems, write things down into algorithms, almost from an engineering or more from an engineering lens could really be a helpful skill in the world of medicine and trying to explain things clearly to patients and come up with what's the best option for them for treatment. And so I thought, well, if someone can help 
train me in those skills. Let's, let's see if I can do this, become a physician. And I was very fortunate to get to come to UNC for medical school to build those skills and continue to use the curiosity and kind of logical way of thinking from my engineering background to become a physician. That's fascinating. The number of times that I meet somebody who is a physician who did their training in engineering and I run into them or get like our paths crossed because of the mutual, like innovative and like kind of tech thinking is maybe not surprising, but also it's uncannily high, right? Like when I think about the people that I go to in the, in, at UNC healthcare, when I have like a, a medical question related to design, I think almost all of them are either trained as engineers or have an interest in the, in the subject of engineering. So I, whether that's coincidence or not, I, I, I appreciate that you have a degree in engineering because I feel like it just like fits the trend that anyway. <laughs> I'll actually say I've also had patients who've kind of looked at the list of providers in our practice and seen that I have a background in engineering and they themselves are engineers and have sought me out to be their provider. <laughs> I hate to say this, but I feel like that's a very engineering thing to do. <laughs> Hopefully nobody hates me for saying that, but like, I mean, honestly, as an engineer, I really appreciate that. <laughs> appreciate I, I do that. too. It leads to some great conversation. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Hey, I wanted to focus today uh, a little bit on your work in innovation and how you approach it. So uh, can you give me sort of a big picture overview of what it is that you teach and how you do that? I'm the director of the fourth year last year medical school course that all students are required to take before they graduate at the UNC School of Medicine called Social and Health System Science 5. So by the five, you can guess that there are previous installments that the students have taken prior to my course. And so I really see my course as a capstone. I want to empower the students to think about what is something you want to make better and then actually go through the process of proposing a way to make that change. And so a lot of the problems that students have brought up are kind of areas for improvement are on the lines of social access to care kind of concerns that some of their patients have had. So social needs, some of them are in health systems needs around how do we improve patient safety? How do we improve communication between interprofessional disciplines? So there are a whole wide range of areas but we try to provide some additional tools for them to use to advocate for the change they want. And some of those are technological tools and some of them are more kind of practicing the skills that they've already learned. And so, for example, one is a technological tool would be something like ArcGIS to do more population level assessment of resources in an area and have them think about what is the clinical outcome or why would they use this information? How would they use this information to provide care or improve care? And so I think kind of broadly to answer your question would be, I try to think of what is a need? What is a gap? And how can we think around all the different possibilities, which are pretty much endless with technology, whether it be in devices or whether it be in kind of systems level thinking that we can do to help impact care. So the students come in, do they have a need in mind already or is part of the class finding that sort of unmet need? So some students very much have the need already kind of, they already have a passion in to address a need. And I see my role in that case is trying to help foster that and give them the tools to move in that direction. Other students haven't necessarily thought through that. And so part of the course is also thinking about doing a needs assessment with a gap analysis, a root cause analysis, so that they can try to find some area where there is need, but also some area that you know has a realistic timeline of something that they could do or something that they have interest in. So I see this course has multiple sort of deliverables to students, depending on where they start at. In terms of teaching medical students, what do you think the biggest challenges from your perspective are with teaching this subject in general? And I'll start there. 
I have other questions that are related to this, but I, I'll just start general and zoom in. One of the biggest challenges that I think everyone faces in the world of innovation and change is it's hard, right? And it can feel very overwhelming. And so part of the process that I try to teach the students is how to break problems down into smaller, more bite-sized areas for innovation and something that can feel like you can have a tangible success. And also um, from my work in graduate school, I remember some very good advice was to celebrate the small successes because maybe someone will throw a party when you have your dissertation defense. But, you know, if you happen to get this one really great looking curve in this data set, it's one of those things where it's important for you to recognize the joy of that moment too, as maybe someone else won't quite throw you a party for that. Well, I think this is relevant because for anybody who's working in the innovation realm, I agree. I think that it's it can be very overwhelming precisely because it's open-ended, right? Like I know I've talked on our podcast before about se- the idea of separating divergent and convergent activities. And then, so my question for you is, are there any particular techniques that you would point people to that you use that, that you really like for helping people break things into bite-sized pieces? Or do you guys, do you just kind of roll your own as it were? <laughs> to quote one of our, our frequent co-hosts, uh, I stole that phrase from Nabil. <laughs> Nabil is the connection of how I came to be yeah. in this group. So it comes full circle. Uh, <laughs> so, I love Nabil. He's great. I love working with him. That's wonderful. So it actually kind of depends. There's a little bit of all of it. So UNC has created this curriculum that where the last year is actually called individualization phase. And, and I think that really fits well to the way that I try to teach this course and encourage students to seek out what issues they actually care about, find out what are gaps that exist in that field, and then propose a way to fix it. And I think narrowing that problem down, I mean, they're encouraged to talk with mentors. I give them a framework of, for instance, in thinking about a root cause analysis, doing a five whys diagram or a fishbone diagram, such that you can think about maybe there is actually one thing at the core of all of it, or thinking about things in like an iceberg model and thinking about mental models and structural things that exist underneath what you see on the surface to help them think critically and then start to pinpoint areas that they feel like are either the sort of most impactful or something they just have the most interest in too, because it's a marriage of making sure that they are actually really passionate about so that they can have a sustainable kind of project around it, but also that it's something that could be impactful. One of the challenges that I find, because I teach device design, and I always had this perennial issue at the beginning of the year, we always get our teams together and we, a large portion of it is them kind of just figuring out who they are as a team, but more importantly, like what they're capable of and what they're not capable of. You know, there's tons of problems out there to work on and not everybody's qualified to solve all of them, right? Like I I certainly wouldn't feel comfortable solving (laughs) every problem on the planet. And so I find that sometimes our student teams will be really interested in an area, but they're really not equipped with the right skills to to solve it. I can think of an example from just a couple of years ago. I had a student team who they were really interested in logistics, like supply chain logistics and healthcare logistics in general. And they went into the sort of design course trying to solve some logistics problems. And it was sort of quickly apparent that as their training had not prepared them for that, and it just didn't fit well. Well, how do you manage that kind of problem? Do you do you run into that with your students? Like, is this a team-based thing or is it, how do you manage that, I guess? Yeah, this comes up a lot. You can imagine, right? There are so many different facets, especially when we're talking about systems, right? So we're, we're talking about the fact that everything is actually very interconnected and there'll be frequently times where 
you may not have all the answers and that's expected. And so a part of, so backing up a little bit as a part of this course, I asked every student to pick one thing to improve and then propose the change, right? For their final project. And I asked them to do it in stages. And as one of the stages, so part two of this project, they have to identify stakeholders and collaborators. And so that's an important aspect, I think of innovation and practicing medicine in general is that it's a team sport and interprofessional teams, right? You want someone who can complement your skill set. And so whether that's working with someone who has expertise in supply chain management or someone who is just a really good designer in, in like being able to graphically present someone something, you know, depending on what your needs are. In my opinion, that's a very wise approach because I think one of the things I find for especially for newer innovators is or or for just folks who haven't gone through anything like this before, I think it's easy to feel as though you're alone and trying to accomplish everything by yourself. And I don't know that, you know, general, most folks' team experiences, at least in education, are, I don't think they really help. <laughs> you know, there's always the like, oh, I'm that one person who did the entire project by myself the night before it was due because my teammates didn't do anything. I'd like to think that th- that gets better. But uh, either way, my opinion is that one of the most important factors in, in an innovation is like building your team out the right way. So I was just curious to see how you handle that because I, it's not uncommon for me to get somebody who comes into my office and they say, oh, I've got this great invention and idea. I'm like, okay, great, cool idea. How are you going to do it? And they're like, uh, well, you know, I was going to build it. I've been tinkering. Okay, great. Have you talked to a physicist about this? Why would I do that? Well, because this is, you know, you're violating thermodynamics laws. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know, and I don't mean to shut people down, but I think the earlier you can find the people that are involved in decision-making in and or the, the science or the, the pathway that you need to choose, the better. So I'm always curious to hear how people manage that problem. It's actually really interesting. I, I The fact that I actually ask them to make sure they're listing these people, sometimes people's response is, I don't think I need to work with anyone. And there are some projects where that might be the case, you know, and especially early on. I just really feel like it's important to at least assess for that. If this person turns out they do have this physics background and it works out great, but at least they thought about it. And something else is even if you don't think you need it, having just another person as the sounding board is really helpful. Yeah, I agree. And I think one of the other things is knowing when to approach those folks is helpful too, because you might identify somebody early on who's a reasonable or, or even critical factor in what you're doing, but it might be too early to approach them, right? Like if you don't have your ideas or if you're not a place where they can really offer any help, there's really no point in going to them, but having them on the list and being aware, I think is really important. I think one of the things that I think what you're mentioning solves is the echo chamber effect, right? Like in my opinion, it's easy to create an echo chamber if you are only surrounding yourself with people who think your idea is great <laughs> and or who have very little experience. I mean, what is that? The Dunning-Kruger effect where you you like know just enough to kind of like think you're, you're way overconfident, but then the more you learn about it, the realization is, oh, actually... This is a lot more complicated. Anyway, stakeholder analysis is a very, I think is a very critical part of any innovation process because it really, if you want to be the best at innovating and if you want to be the best at what you're doing, you have to be up to speed on what's going on (laughs) because you won't be viewed as an expert unless unless you are, right? But I think that's a challenging thing. And in a course, I think it's really important. So I wanted to pick your brain on that. I think it's also very applicable to primary care. So what I do in the clinical world, there is a lot of team-based work there as well. 
especially when we're taking care of patients who are really complex and have a lot of things going on. So just like a, a device innovation can be really complicated and have a lot of parts that are interconnected. You know, people are whole. They have so many different components of how they got to be where they are. And, you know, not one specific specialty or one specific even field of care, whether they be social work or pharmacy or kind of clinical providers in more of the traditional physician sense may be able to solve all the problems at once. And so knowing to reach out and create these collaborative teams is the best way to innovate and provide the best care at the same time. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm not in healthcare myself, but I can't imagine like the number of the sheer volume of stakeholders, especially for a person in family medicine where you're effectively like the front door, (laughs) right? Like everybody sees you. And you have to manage so many different types of people and ages and diseases and conditions and pharmacologic interventions and device interventions. I, I can't even imagine, but maybe that makes you uniquely qualified to, to help out with the stakeholder analysis part, because that's probably a, a very deep part of what you practice. Well, it's lent itself to making being part of this group really just wonderful experience for me in so many ways from kind of a combination of my engineering background, but also just seeing all of the innovation in solving clinical problems, right? Because I see such a variety of concerns that patients bring to me. This has just been so wonderful to see the work that's being done in improving care in different aspects. This is reassuring to me (laughs) as a member of Fast Tracks that the clinical advisory group members are saying things like that. (laughs) Cause I think, and I've got a different episode about this. I mean, so when we first started the clinical advisory, (laughs) speaking of stakeholders, Fast Tracks, we were working on a, we had something like 316 unmet needs in our database. And we were like, okay, these are all interesting. Which ones do we pick? And then as we got further along, we'd always thought like, you know what we should have? We should have a sounding board of providers who can actually tell us if we're sane or not. And I think we kind of had expected the clinical advisory group to be a place for us to go and be like, here's our design. What do you think? And I feel like it's become so much more than that. And it's been like, there's just, it's so much more helpful than I think we ever could have imagined in large part because we're engineers and we didn't think through all the things that you guys could help us with. But anyway, I I have to say clinical advisory group has been fantastic and very informative in our direction and for not only in our design decisions, but also in our direction, you know, in terms of which problems we look at and what problems we continue to pursue and which ones we don't. So, all right, back to innovation. So one of the reasons I'm so interested to talk to you is because you're working with providers. I work mostly with engineers and on the whole, I'd say there's a very different approach and perhaps different thought process that happens. And even though the innovation techniques that are used in both fields are very similar. I think that the sort of general population of individuals participating is thought processes are a little different. And so I'm curious to understand from your perspective, what are the barriers that you have found, if any, when working with providers? And as a person myself, who is an engineer working with providers doing medical devices on like, what advice would you give to me when working with providers, aside from the fact that like, I know providers have zero time. And if you have any great suggestions for how to more efficiently use provider time, I'm all ears. And hopefully this isn't a totally like out of the blue kind of question, but I'm really curious to hear your perspective as a provider who works for providers on innovative thinking. Like, what do you think the challenges and unique kind of, I don't know, I'll almost call them cultural differences between like a hardcore engineer and a clinician in terms of teaching innovation? I think it varies a lot across disciplines. There are just so many different people who become physicians or so many different personalities. And 
you know, I think a big difference for me has kind of been pace. So when I was in graduate school and doing more of in the engineering world, it was expected that it takes a long time from an idea to something that we can implement as something that could be broadly available to the public. And in medicine, I think there's a different sense of urgency. There's a patient, there's a need, there's something that needs to happen to help improve this patient's outcomes on a shorter time scale. And it goes back to your thought around time. It's true. Physicians rarely <laughs> have, have a lot of time in addition. I mean, I think there was an article and I can't remember where in the popular press it was, but it was along the headlines was, what do you think your physician is doing on a Friday night? And the answer is charting. Yeah, I was um, going to say documentation. Writing, <laughs> writing notes. Um, and, and I think that's part of how our system is set up now, that there's not a lot of time for innovation. And there's definitely ways to carve that out. It, it's often on the provider to do that. So in some ways, when I work with colleagues, I, I try to frame questions in a way that I hope will appeal to their, their goal, which I think we all kind of understand the common goal of improving outcomes for patients. And so in the sense of, for instance, when I was sharing that I joined this group, I thought asking my colleagues, what are some ideas or what are some challenges you face and how could, have you thought of some technological idea or do you just have a problem that maybe technology could be of benefit for? And, and can you please share that with me? So kind of appealing to their, the outcome in order to engage them investing in the process. And I feel like that's led to some interesting conversations. And so I, I hope it's effective. You just happened to highlight one of the perfect examples of stuff that we hadn't anticipated with the clinical advisory group is like how much our clinical advisors are going to their colleagues and shopping around what we're doing and the thought process behind it. So thank you. That's interesting because I agree. I don't know what to do about that. Because I mean, if I look at the people who are on a clinical advisory group as a whole, all of them are very, they're intentional about making time for improvement in devices. Now, here's the pressure that puts on engineers, right? We know how little time you have. And I've worked with providers before, specifically ones who have coached my students. Obviously, we expect results. I mean, the whole reason that people on both ends are in this is to improve healthcare and improve patient outcomes. But I think, as you point out, the sense of urgency is really important, partly because it kind of lights a fire under us. Like, right, if you're a provider and you come to a group of engineers and you're like, let's fix this problem. And they say, yeah, we can do it. And then they don't deliver on that. That's not going to pan out well. So I think for us, there's some accountability there. And also it really, it does spark a sense of urgency. And I think you may have highlighted something that I hadn't really even considered, but also one of the unintended side effects, right? Is like shopping this around to people shares what we're doing too. So but I hope that means it, it broadens the kind of group of ideas and that, that, that hopefully that sense of urgency is constructive because it can definitely also be pressure that's not helpful. At the same time, it's something where, you know, if it's a, okay, let's, let's help focus this idea or, you know, turns out this need has shifted in this slight way. I think working together in these interdisciplinary teams is really a lot of fun and intellectually stimulating. And we can all learn from it, even if not necessarily applying to our current project, maybe in some others. Yeah. And I mean, I think I would add that for those listening who, you know, we have sort of a hand-selected clinical advisory group, but that doesn't mean that we're not interested in hearing from everybody. I think a couple general observations, I would say, first of all, our clinical advisors as a whole are all very like open-minded to new ideas and are sort of already thinking about solving unmet needs. I think one of the things that maybe I won't say is absent from this group, but something that we that may be harder to implement would be like the critical eye 
at least we, the engineers have, have talked about how valuable it is sometimes to have that one person in the room who's like, that's never going to work because we want to hear from them. Like what, what challenges on the clinical end of things are going to prevent, you know, like new providers from taking like a new device up, like what is, what's going to hinder a new technology from getting in the hands of a provider. So anyway, thinking out loud on that one, but that might be, you know, kind of like what you were saying earlier at different stages of development of a device or project, you need that different kind of input. And so when you have something that you're maybe at this stage, it's like, okay, I need to go to my, my favorite naysayer and just help shoot this down. And if it passes that test, then you move on to the next stage. And kind of when you have these sort of presentable stages that you can share, that, that is definitely a really helpful resource. I agree. And I think you're right on the money about the timing of things, right? Like if you go to somebody who's going to shut it down too early, you run the risk of not really exploring it fully. But then if you wait too long, you might get so far down the line. You're like, oh, I've got this new product. And they're like, did you think about the packaging? It won't work. Like, Oh, (laughs) you know. Which is actually why I feel like as a part of, um, so far, I have not been on the advisor group for very long, but the couple of design ideas that have been presented have been at different stages. And I feel like it's been helpful to think through what kinds of conversations you all have had previously, but also what are the concerns? How, how much closer are we to actually engaging with patients? And that kind of brings up different thoughts from the, the providers as well, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, I'm going to ask you this question because now we're on the subject of the clinical advisory group. What suggestions do you have? I mean, this is a new thing for us too. We've just started it about actually in January. So it hasn't been that long really since we, I mean, okay, we did have people that we went to, but the formal clinical advisory group, we just launched it in the last six months. Oh, I thought you guys had been doing this for a long time and I was just the last winner. <laughs> well, I, I don't know if that's good or bad that that that, that it appears that way. Uh, hopefully good. But no, actually, because Alan Rosenbaum came on sort of over the like this last year, and he's the one who helped start assembling the clinical advisory group. And we I actually did an interview with him in the last season about the clinical advisory group because we were just talking about what was going to come and we didn't really know. And we're going to do periodic check-ins with them on like how the clinical advisory group is going. And we have been trying out a couple different things. Like, I guess you weren't here yet for this one, but we had originally, it was like me and Nicole and Abel, we sat down and we're like, here's the structure. And we had this like outline, like, here's the information everybody needs to present all the time. That went out the window after attempt number one, because it was just like nowhere near what we needed to be doing. And so we've been evolving this for sure over, over the course of time and yeah, I guess I'm curious to hear your suggestions on what we could do or change. Like, since you're often sitting on the receiving end of a bunch of like a litany of information, like last week when I was talking about wearable contact lens technologies, <laughs> I'm curious to know, like, are we using your time efficiently? Could we, could we be doing something better? Should we send you material ahead of time? Or like, what do you think? I actually really like the format. I like that you all share the background and kind of how you got to where you are. I like that you share some of the concerns about barriers moving forward and how you've troubleshot some of them in the past and how some of them are still pending. I think it's really helpful to troubleshoot those things together. I really appreciate that the rest of the group, everybody's kind of open for comment. I feel like the group has good communication. You know, people build on each other's questions and also everyone raises hands. It's so civil. (laughs) Yeah. I appreciate that people participate and I don't know if that's a side effect of our structure or if it's just the group or both. I think that's often the immeasurable and somewhat intangible, intangible component of that group. Like we could script specific questions that we're looking for answers to, 
but I don't think that's as useful as having that general discussion where people are sort of, as you point out, building off each other's ideas. And probably for the same reason that divergent thinking will get you to places that you never thought you would, you won't necessarily think of questions until somebody prompts a series that leads you to there. And you have such a variety of people on this group from different backgrounds and different interests. I think it lends itself really well to this synergistic conversation that often is like a big brainstorming session, which to me is a lot of fun. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And I, and we did that on purpose, right? Like we did not want to have like nine orthopedic surgeons on our (laughs) clinical advisory group. We wanted to have, you know, like a provider from each area and we wanted people from diverse backgrounds, both skills and culturally and educationally, you name it. Like we really wanted to have a variety of providers. Now I will say right now, I think we only have I think everybody's an MD except for one person. So maybe we need to work on that next. Like maybe we need to get some more like PAs and nurse practitioners and nurses on the calls, because I think that's actually something that we struggle with is sort of like whose information is most important when, and what I mean by that is like, particularly when we're talking about devices, if this is like a bedside device, right. Or disposable, we have to think about the way that the person who's actually using it is going to perceive it and use it, et cetera. And oftentimes that's not an MD. That's like a, we're talking about a nurse or we're talking about a PA or we're talking about a physical therapist. And I think that came up a couple of times during our last conversation around who is the person that's going to be deploying this or who's going to be talking to patients about it. And so I feel like that's an important thing about, like, just like we talked about who are the important stakeholders at different points. And it's hard to build a commit, like a, a career advisory group that, or a, a clinical advisory group that contains all of the things, all of the people um, that you may ever want to talk to. It does seem like so far that there's you know, a good amount of thinking outside the box, right? So there are people who, I mean, you all know, you know all these people too, but people who are OBGYNs who are thinking about contact lenses, right? And <laughs> and so that perspective of- That's a really good point. <laughs> I think I, for me, it's a little bit different given I'm in primary care and, and, and involved in all the organ systems to some extent, but there are people who subspecialize and yet are still thinking critically about these problems, maybe using a different part of their experience and their logical brain. Yeah. And I'll add to, you know, one of the things that I really appreciate about the clinical advisory group, and it sort of piggybacks on what you said earlier is like the questions that are brought up are often like, are often specifically directed at expanding the stakeholder group. Right. And, oh, I think you gave a perfect example from last week, right? The question came up, like, is this an ophthalmologist or optometrist who are going to deploy this and in what setting? And I work with an ophthalmologist. So I just assumed it would be an ophthalmologist, but I'd never really thought about like, what if we put this into a, that the very first place a person would go for an eye exam. And so I think I appreciate the cha- the, the questions from that front, but also the connections, right? It's, uh, oh, you need to talk to so-and-so. And I think that's part of the reason we formed the, the clinical advisory group too, is to direct us a little bit and tell us who else should we be talking to? How should we be thinking? And who are the other relevant stakeholders? And because it may be then for each project, it kind of tailors down to a group that could be even more interdisciplinary in thinking about how to how to implement or bring one of these devices to fruition. Yeah. And I mean, that's kind of the goal, right? We ideally would get everything that we work on out into the market or available to a patient or, or providers to help patients because at the end of the day, that's kind of why we're here. We want to improve patient outcomes. And I think not only does it prime us for whatever the right path is, but I think it also helps. It creates a built-in scientific advisory group, right? For whatever technology it is, whether it start the, whether that's a startup company or a licensing agreement or open source or whatever it may be, 
we can go to that group and say, okay, got to do a sanity check here. You know, what do you think about this idea? So I'm very excited to see where a clinical advisory group gets. I, I think for anybody who's listening, who is at an academic institution where innovation, especially in the medical devices or biological devices realm is, I would strongly advise getting, getting a group of providers together, like what we've got, because that really helps steer the direction of things. And I don't know that we've even talked about the format on this, but for those, again, who aren't familiar with our clinical advisory group, we just meet once a week for about an hour and we run through a topic. And sometimes it's an unmet need. Sometimes it's specifics of a a very specific device design, but either way, we get great feedback from you guys. And I think too, we get a lot of good learning. Like one time when one of the group was teaching more about just shortness of breath and how do we consider different technological interventions that might be helpful in differential diagnosis and, and even targeting treatment. And so, yeah, I would just say it's been a really rich experience as a clinical advisor. And I'm glad to hear that it's helpful for you all as well. And just the flexibility with it also leads itself to some of these topics organically changing into something else, which can also be really useful. So I'm looking forward to seeing how it evolves. Yeah, you and me both. It's been a a, a real pleasure so far, and I I think it'll just continue getting better. So, all right, I'm going to ask one more question. before we kind of wrap things up. So in your experience, you've been teaching innovation, you've been working on our clinical advisory group. The folks who listen to our podcast are in academic centers, they're in medicine, they're, you know, they're various walks. And the point of the podcast is to kind of uncover or pull the curtain back on sort of how the sausage is made (laughs) in terms of innovation at, at academic centers and in particular ones that have, you know, hospitals that work with them. So what advice do you have for maybe a group or an entity based on your experience thus far, which I know hasn't been very long, but you've been doing a ton of teaching. And so I think clinical advisory group aside, you have tons of experience. I would like to hear your perspective on, on what you would suggest to anybody who's trying to get into the world of innovation. What would be your advice? This is definitely, like you were saying, I don't know that I I feel like I have a lot of experience in this, even though you did just say with teaching, there's some experience there. But I think this kind of ties back into our earlier conversation around building collaborations. Because I don't feel like I have a ton of expertise, in a lot of the things that I do, I seek out people, mentors, collaborators who have different areas of expertise. And I think that is a way to help grow your own knowledge base, grow awareness of what's actually been done and things that have gone well, things that have not gone so well, that can help pave your path. And it also makes your experience richer. I think creating a product with a group of people that you really share this passion with lends itself to a different kind of energy than being in a dark room with a light shining over your kind of hunched over self, punching on a keyboard, or in my case in the past, um, late into the night, decorating cantilevers with proteins. So <laughs> for a minute, <laughs> I, I thought you do were... that with a wonderful lab group. But <laughs> I was going to make a, an off-color radiology joke, but I, I'll leave that aside. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> But the overarching theme, I think, has been seeking out people that have a shared passion, that have complementary expertise and learning from each other. And I think this also creates a culture of collegiality that learners really appreciate. And I think also lends itself to being more fruitful um, when there are lots of minds thinking together in a positive way. It's more likely that lots of other little things will bloom as well. Wonderful advice. 
Dr. Lamb, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. It's been a wonderful time talking to you. I am absolutely going to have you on this podcast again because it's been so much fun. And I'll be curious to check in with you as we go forward on the clinical advisory group and your thoughts and suggestions there. So I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for joining me on Guidewire. And uh, we'll see you in the clinical advisory group this week. Uh, It's been so wonderful being here. I very much enjoyed talking with you as well. Thank you so much. Hopefully today's discussion provided some insight on innovation instruction for healthcare providers. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, please send a message to guidewire at unc.edu. Follow us on Twitter at GuidewirePod. For more content like this, consider subscribing to the Guidewire podcast on your favorite streaming service. As always, I'm your host, Devin Hubbard, and we will talk to you next time. Learn more about our exciting activities, opportunities, and team by subscribing to the Guidewire podcast on your favorite listening service. If you have identified an unmet medical need or are interested in learning more about our process, visit us at guidewire.unc.edu. You have been listening to Guidewire, a direct line to medical device innovation.